0: Good morning. <clears throat> I just want to begin this, this talk then is on repentance and faith, um, and this is the first key. And so um, I want to read a little a little a um, testimony from Betty. This is in, in the, your, uh, your your guidebooks also, or your um, um, yeah these little the, the green blue one or the uh, or the brown one. And this is uh, just her her testimony. Driving home from the final day of the Unbound Freedom in Christ Conference, I noticed an amazing and unprecedented thing. I could look at the Christmas lights festooning our downtown without any, without that all too familiar weight of dread and resentment, building in the pit of my stomach. The truth is, it had been years since I looked at the approaching holidays with any feeling remotely resembling joy or anticipation. Was it just a lousy? Christ, was I just a lousy Christian, or was it the more sinister truth? My mother-in-law was coming to town. It never. It never failed. Each holiday season, my mother-in-law descended on our family with her dark entourage of accusation, anger, and vitriol. And her dark entourage would then call forth from me a host of other party crashers, resentment, guilt, and fear. When I looked at these cheerful Christmas lights, I waited for the familiar sensations of nausea, dread, and anger to rise, like bile in my throat. But those sensations were gone, simply gone. I tried to prod them a little by remembering the last time my mother-in-law visited and had stormed out of the house. The memories were vague and the anger gone. Praise God. I'd been released. This year would be different. At the conference, I had come forward for prayer multiple times and had miraculously forgiven my mother-in-law. I had decided that I wanted Jesus more than I wanted my old grudges. That day, I renounced my old enemies, resentment Anger, worry, and dread. Our Lord, in his mercy, replaced this garbage with something precious, understanding. Now I knew that my mother-in-law, apart from the grace of God, would never change. She will always look for rejection and lash out. My husband and I must change how we interact with her. The last two days, I've had a picture of Jesus taking the place of my old protective shield of anger and resentment and standing between my husband's mother and me. I've been released from the weight of remembering past wrongs. In the name of Jesus, and with the help of some powerful intercession, I renounce the spirits that would rob me of the joy of Christmas. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Betty in Pennsylvania. It's always a great um, experience to read a testimony because what testimonies do is they give us hope. They give us hope that... If it can be like that for them, maybe it could be like that for me. And that's a profound gift, a profound gift. Um, At the end of this, at the end of the book or the end of the the DVD series, in the back of this uh, little booklet here, there's always a a couple pages that talk about a testimony. So I invite you just to think and to keep that in the back of your mind. You know, um, could my story and my story of encounter with Christ's goodness and his setting me free and unbound help someone else as an act of charity? But really, it's an act of of, of of proclaiming God's glory. And he deserves to be glorified. You see, whatever happens to you, good, uh, is something that God has done in your life. And he deserves to be glorified. So we don't have to keep it to ourselves. You know, it's okay to share it. It's okay to tell people what God has done in our life. What a beautiful gift. That's what this testimony was. And if you experienced the hope that came from that, and like the, wow, maybe that can be for me. That's the beautiful thing. That's the whole truth. And then realize that you too um, will very likely have something to share. If not this weekend, maybe next year, maybe the year after. Maybe you think back. You remember something and realize that God had done something beautiful in your life. Okay, first mini conference there um repentance in the beginning is the repentance is the beginning of faith you know we heard kind of neil kind of give the he's the expert really even though he says he isn't he really is um and but he does it so cleanly and so purely i'm going to stumble through his outline and do the best i can to help you kind of hear it again and hear a little more of it um the first words as he said with jesus public ministry in mark's gospels chapter 1 verse 15 jesus says repent and believe in the gospel repent and believe in the gospel now, we sometimes, as you said, accurate, we have a, an accurate view. Uh, we, do, we sometimes have an inaccurate view of repentance. Um, we kind of like to think of it as all this hard work I've got to do, or many times I've failed, that I'm still going to confession, confessing the same things over and over again. And so it kind of like gives us a, a, a kind of almost like a, a wall that gets put up in front of, in front of us because we see failure and regret many times, um, or even dread looking at the expected future of failure and again. But the dictionary is kind of lacking when it talks about what repentance is. It just simply says, recognizing wrongs and being sorrowful. You know, I often find that dictionaries are kind of lacking sometimes in important topics. One time I looked at the word relationship and said, I wonder what the dictionary says about what a relationship is. You know, talking about relationship with God. or well, what is it? And it says, a connection with something else. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? You know, anyway, that's another homily. Um, so... A biblical definition for definition of, for for conversion is the word Greek word metanoia, and it literally means um, a change of mind that leads to a change of action or a change of life. A change of mind that leads to a change of action or life, you know. Um, and so there's there's the, the the deeper sense of metanoia. There's that transformation of the mind that actually flows forth into a lived reality of our life. You know, we can oftentimes think about things. But sometimes they never actually take root in our life. We can think about them for years and years and years, even decades, but never really act upon them and never actually let them become part of us. Metanoia, true conversion, repentance is that is that transformation that actually happens. Um at first it comes in, I'm gonna think differently, I'm gonna see this act this thing differently like Betty, and because of Christ's grace in her life to set her free, could look at her whole situation differently, and because of that could act differently was a profound example of, of that conversion. Excuse me. But Jesus meant before he came, they simply meant turning back to the law, you know, redoing things again. And it's a very radical difference. You know, Jesus does something pretty radical here in a sense. He ties these two things together, repent and believe. And that's like, wow, those are really two different things. And that's why there's one key. It's not two separate keys. But there's one motion that happens. There's one thing. Uh, and I'll say, it, I'll say it again maybe several times. Because that idea of turning away from something or turning, away, turning you know, if you turn, you have to turn away from something to um, something else or someone else. You know, so we turn away from this way of thinking or for this habitual sin. And we turn away and we turn to Jesus. That's the whole key of conversion is turning away from these things in my life that are not doing anything good for me and turning to someone, to Jesus. The good news is the kingdom of God, <clears throat> which we enter by repentance and faith in Acts two chapter uh, verse thirty eight. Uh, the author of Acts says, Repent or St. Luke, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, as, as we begin this, this time of p- pondering repentance and faith, you know, it's also a time for us to ponder um, those elements of our life um, that are habitual sin, that are sin in our lives that we've never maybe confessed um, or things in our life that we've never really had the, the gumption to really break from, you know, or things that we may not even realize were right or wrong. You know, I encourage you uh, very much. So, in your um, in your Unbound book, sometime before you go to prayer, is to go back to page two thirty nine, Appendix one, and it's called a Deliverance Questionnaire. And just read through those things. Those are some big, heavy things, but they're things to kind of recognize and to say, "I need to repent of these things." In my in the first step to really set my heart free to receive and to be free of everything else. Um, it, it's a very powerful appendix that has a lot of um, a lot of big things in there. Faith is often a struggle to grow in. It's often a struggle to grow in. Um, Neil says in, in, on page 61 he says, Some people who consider themselves Christians have never clearly understood and personally accepted the reality of who Jesus is as a Savior. You know, and that's interesting that if you've read uh, Sherwood L's book, Making Attention to Disciples, she quotes a, a study in there that says 49% of Catholics. Do not believe it's even possible to have a personal relationship with God. That's a pretty huge thing. And that's, um, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> Going to church can seem empty if we lack a personal knowledge of sin and relationship with the one who saves us. I know many people who grew up in the church and accept the teachings of the faith, but A personal relationship with the Lord requires a time of conversion, facing not just the fact that we all sin, but that I sin. And my sinfulness requires a personal need for a Savior. When you consider his death and resurrection, do you take it personally? Did he die for you or did he die for everybody? Right. That's how we like to think. But that's an easy way of saying, it's not really me. He died for everybody. I'm just one of a trillion people. <laughs> so it's not that personal. But when we say he died for me, then it becomes very personal. In the uh, the, the little pamphlet on the rosary that you, that you I mean, I uh, had a sheet on the rosary back there. Um, and when we pray the rosary today, I'd like to try and use that little phrases for um, today's, the, 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 uh, um, um, the joyful mysteries or glorious mysteries. Um, but on Fridays, for example, it's the mystery of the sorrowful mysteries. And there's a little phrase there that Pope John Paul II recommended in his, in his document on the rosary that we pray after the name Jesus. And it basically summarizes the mystery. Many times we go through the rosary praying and we, don't, we often just kind of say the mystery at the beginning was, we just kind of blow through the prayers. But the whole idea of the rosary is to think about the mystery, what God has done, Jesus has done in, in the world, in our life. And, for example, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, who was scourged for me, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Or who was crowned with thorns for me. Or who was carried the cross for me. Who was crucified for me. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. That's different, isn't it? It brings that mystery right into, into our life. Right into our life. and makes it very profound and very personal. But they say, so is the joyful mysteries. Um, who was born for me? Who, you know, um, was found in the temple for me? You know, and all the same things. He died and rose for your liberation. Or is it simply a sign of his love for all humanity? Does your hope of eternal life rest completely on what he has done for you? You know, that's a huge, huge point. And it, it's, it's um, we all kind of, in our, in our um, false humility, we all kind of pull back from it. But no, to realize that he cares about me. He cares about you that much that he, that he, he did all this for us. I'd like to say there's three aspects of conversion. You now, conversion um, it, it, in, in, in a very kind of a classical way is one is coming to know the saving love of Jesus and two, making a personal decision about the Savior and three, living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that, that change, that turning of coming to know his saving love and making the decision to follow him um, and then living in a way that is in accord with that. I like to sometimes describe it in a similar way, maybe a little simpler language, and that's little four steps. And first is, I see what I have done. This is part of conversion. I see what I have done. Secondly, I see what Jesus did for me. Thirdly, I see that I need Jesus to save me. And fourthly, I decide to follow Jesus in a life like his. I see what I have done, just being honest with ourself and our life. And I see what he did for me. And I see that I need him. I need Jesus to save me. And then I decide because of what he has done for me and he has saved me, which we experience in the freedom, I'm going to follow him with all my life. I'm going to follow him, and he's going to be my Lord. He's going to be the one who I live for because he lived for me and gave his life for me. Both of them speak of a decision that we need to make. Now, some call this a personal decision. Um, Many Catholics react to this language as Protestant and see it as tainted and thus don't accept its validity. I'll be very honest. I do, too. <laughs> it has this, now, for the younger generation, God bless you all, because you haven't, probably haven't caught those languages, don't have that little that baggage that we older ones carry. Um, but, but I do, you know, personal relationship. And I personally struggle with it. I have to fight with it. I have to re- reinforce re- realize, no, he really does want to be in a relationship with me. You know, I'll be very honest. Um, he really does. And I have to engage myself in that. And, and, but yet I, I'm very encouraged by what our, holy, our but most of us, not all of us maybe, but most of us would probably have remembered, St. John Paul II. What an amazing pope. You know, what an amazing pope. What a holy, holy, amazing man. You know, what did he say? He said, conversion is, this is the pope speaking, a saint, accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. So here's the Pope, the saint of our own lifetime, who says this is what conversion is, accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ. Sovereignty, all-powerful, Lord, that he does it all. And becoming his disciple. Disciple means follower. You know, uh, the, the, the Jewish language or the Hebrew language would say that a disciple is, I heard this great definition once, he says literally what the words meant is that um, the, the, is that a disciple is one who walks so close to the master that the dust of the master's feet fall on yours. What a profound thought. We walk so close to the master that the dust of his feet would fall on ours in the way of his life. Now, this little uh, definition reminds me of experience I had um, at a wedding a number of years back. The photographer was not Catholic. And at the reception, the mother of the bride asked me to, to talk to her about the Mass, because she'd never really been to a Mass before. And we had a very nice conversation. She was a single mother who escaped an abusive husband. A friend told her there was always a place next to her at her church. What a great way to invite somebody to church. You know what? You're struggling. says, there's always a place next to me. I go this time. I sit over here in this part of the church. There's always a spot next to me. You're welcome to come. And so she decided to come. And so she went to her to her, this friend's church, and she began to grow in faith. And teaching her three-year-old daughter what was of Jesus and what was of Satan. Three-year-old daughter. A friend was telling her um, that she was having a really hard time. And the little girl spoke up saying, quote, you let Satan in your heart. And the lady said, yes, I'm struggling with that. The mother little girl said she taught her that we have to be both believers and followers. Now, how many are going to really say something when a little three-year-old says, you let Satan in your heart? Okay, what a convicting word that would be, okay? Um, it's a powerful, powerful one. And she was honest. She says, yeah, I'm struggling with that. Yeah. You know, but, but that beautiful phrase I love that she said, told her daughter, says, I teach her that we have to be both believers and followers. You can't just be a believer in who Jesus is, in who God is. You have to be a believer and a follower, Because that's actually what the the gospel means when it says um, repent and believe. Okay, believe, repent and believe doesn't mean just change your life. It means follow him. Believe means not just an intellectual thing. It's a choice of our life, to live our life in a way that models him. And I think sometimes we get caught in the fact that, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe God. He's three persons, one God. Okay, I believe that. But it doesn't have any effect on our life. You know? And, And so... I think what she taught her, her little girl, was pretty profound and simple. We have to be both believers and followers. The catechism of the Catholic Church says, in in paragraph number 150, faith is, first of all, a personal adherence. I love that word. Personal adherence of man to God. The thought that always pops in my mind is being a little, or being maybe in a store and seeing it and being do myself probably, um, maybe a little toddler, maybe two years old, three years old, and they're in a store and something scares them. What do they do? They, they latch on to mom and dad's, mom's leg. You know, you ever seen that happen you? I've experienced some others. You know, they're afraid, but they latch on. You know, they hold on to mom for dear life. Um, and, and what a beautiful thought of this is how we're supposed to live our life, is at a personal adherence to God that way, that we cling to God like that knowing that he will protect us, knowing that he will take care of us, knowing that he, we have nothing to fear in his presence. And what a beautiful way to think of our faith, a personal adherence of man to God. At the same time and inseparably, it is a free assent to the whole truth that God has revealed. As personal adherence to God and assent to his truth, Christian faith differs from our faith in any human person. It is right and just to entrust oneself wholly to God, and to believe absolutely what He says. It would be futile and false to place such faith in a creature. So, faith—supernatural faith—is clinging to God. It's not the same as human faith. We may have a faith in somebody who may go, bring the milk, get milk after after work and bring it home, um, or beings that you're not from it may not, may not touch you very well. But for those who are, who are from Nebraska, that the Huskers may win the national championship someday in our life again. <laughs> It's a great hope and faith that some of us might have, but it seems pretty far off. So we go on. We we see how conversion and faith are intimately connected almost as one step, one movement from something to someone. And there's that beautiful part from something in our life that's that's not of God turning to Jesus completely, embracing him. Repentance of sin, the second part really, Repentance of sin is, is a personal decision to receive, Neil says, to receive the love of Christ. And that may sound kind of odd. How does repentance mean receiving the love of Christ? Well, any sin in our life is almost always rooted in um, this, this whole idea of, of that, that we need something. Or that this is better for me. And that what I want, I should be able to have. You know, uh, And what, what that's saying is that those are all things of this world. Those are all pleasures or things, or whatever they are, of this world. And yet what this says is, there's something greater than this world. There's something greater than my desires. There's something greater than my hurt that I want to assuage by being angry at someone or being taking vengeance on someone. There's something greater, and that is the love of God. There's something greater than the stuff that keeps me down, and it's the love of Jesus Christ. That's what's greater. So repentance is turning away from this to just receive his love, which is greater than anything else in this world can ever offer us. It's greater than any pleasure. It's greater than any any possession. It's greater than anything because only it is eternal and life-giving. The things that we think will give us pleasure and joy in this world are only momentary flashes. They last for a moment, for a time. But only the love of God, only the love of Jesus can imbue us with life can transform our lives by receiving it. Neil says, you know, yes, sin is disobedience. But sin is really, he says, rejecting the lordship in our lives. Rejecting that God is Lord. Jesus is the head. He's the Lord. You know, I owe my life to him. You know, I owe everything to him. And, and he has a right to say, and he made me out of nothing. And, I have a, and he has a right to say, because he loves me, don't go down this path. I love you too much. Don't go down that path. Now, we, when we, when his lordship is in our life, then we say, okay, Lord, I, I believe you. I trust you. I won't do that. And so that's where he says that sin is really rejecting his lordship, that he knows best for us, and that his way is the best way, the happiest way, the most joyful way that our lives can be lived. Repenting of sin is repenting of our rejection of Jesus as of lord, his lordship in our lives. So it's really just saying, you know, it's really saying, no, you know what, I think I know what I want, but I realize that that's wrong. I, I know that you know what's best for me, Lord, and I want to follow you, and I want your will to be done in my life. Lord, the master of all of our life, it belongs to him. Now, the third part, then, of repentance is sorrow and regret. And sorrow and regret are not repentance, which is, um, which is good to know. You know, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance of sin leads to life, not condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 9 through 11 says this: Not because you were saddened, but because of your sadness led to repentance. You were filled with a sorrow that came from God. Thus you did not suffer any loss from us. Indeed, sorrow for God's sake produces a repentance without rejects, without regrets, leading to salvation. Whereas worldly sorrow brings death. Just look at the fruit of this sorrow, which stems from God. What a measure of holy zeal it has brought you. That's St. Paul. What a measure of holy zeal it has brought you. Confession is necessary expen- expression of repentance. As Neil was saying this morning also, you know, sorrow and regret are good, but, but they do not equal repentance. Repentance and confession are, are different, but they're really meant to go together. Now, remember, a conversion is a change of mind that leads to a change of life or a change of action. Now, we all have been to confession and confessed our sins and came back the next time, the next week, the next month. um, Hopefully not the next year, but even then, that's okay, too. um, um, God forgives us always. Uh, We have been to confession and confessed our sins and came back and confessed the same sins the next time. And after a while, we kind of get, oh, it's always the same thing. I hear that all the time. It's always the same thing, Father, over and over. Go, well, welcome to the human race. You know, we're, well, that's how we all kind of are. We, we all are struggling. But confession with our repentance equals and shows that there's no change of mind yet that brings about a change in action. That's why it's so different. Sorrow and regret, but true repentance are connected but different, very different. Confession begins with the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we begin to think differently about our sins, you know, we come to that point, I'm done with this. I do not want this anymore in my life. You know, I'm done with it. That's the idea of renouncing also. And then so that's the idea of renunciation um, and repentance is that we're done with that. And we're just sick of it. And so we're ready to just walk away from it. Then is something profound can t- takes place. Confession begins with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we begin to think differently about our sins. Not that we have a right to them, but that they really aren't good for us, and they really don't make me happy in the long run, and we realize that. Humility with confession of sin yields transformation. Remember the prodigal son when he was out feeding the pigs, uh, the pods, and they didn't give anything, and all of a sudden he comes, to, he comes to his senses, the Scripture says. He comes to his senses, and he begins to think, My, my father's house, even the, even the servants have more than, that, more than this, and begins to think clearly. He says, I'm, I will go back and I will repent and for, ask my father for forgiveness. I've sinned against heaven against you, Father. I no longer deserve your son. You know, begin, the, the key line there is he began, he came to his senses, which means he began to think clearly and he recognized the truth. You know, that's a huge moment in our lives and one we should always yearn for and, and be alert for and ask for. Humility with confession then yields the transformation. Confession without change means there's a failure to access the power of repentance. And there has been no change of mind, there's no change of action. So we just keep on kind of going forward. But God, his mercy and his love, is so patient with us. Exposing the deception, really. The big deception is that we think oftentimes that we haven't sinned, or we have no no need to repent. Deception is part of every sin. Um, And Jesus really confirmed that on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing literally means that they've been deceived. They don't see things clearly. They don't understand how much this hurts that person. They don't understand how much this hurts themselves. Father, they don't realize how much this hurts you. They've been deceived. What a merciful Lord makes excuse for all of us, for all of our sin. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know what a, what a loving God, what a loving God to make excuses for us and to give us that, that awesome chance um, to turn and accept what the Father wants to give us, his mercy and love. Deception keeps us from fully understanding how our sin offends God, which is really indifference. We just don't really see it. Um, the father of lies has his hand in every, every sin through direct or indirect deception. You know, the, for example, the young mother who comes to confession, and she confesses, I'm mad at, I'm mad at my kids, and I'm upset with my husband, and, and, and each time um, it just keeps getting, it stays there. You know, um, you know it's like grass. We cut, the we cut all the grass off. It looks good for a little while, but then the weeds kind of pop up. They keep growing up, you know. They keep growing up every time we cut it. Unless we get underneath and dig them out by the roots. Underneath, we see the lies, the deception for this, for this young mother. You know, maybe what's really in her heart is that there's no one to help me. I'm a bad mother. I'm all alone. Those are the lies that are underneath that sin of, I get mad at my kids and I'm upset with my husband. It's really underneath there is a lie that says, I'm all alone. I'm a bad mother. No one to help me. The lies... Are what keep us in the sins the bondage this is a bondage to the lies Lies need to be recognized and renounced that 's what sets us free you know um, I remember working with with a with a, a young person once struggling with the with the sin and and one of the ways this is so important in our in our um, in our sessions of prayer or being listened to. Um, is, is one of the things that you learn is, in, in listening is to find out where's the root of this problem coming from? Where's this coming from? And so I'd ask them, I says, well, when did this start? And they said, oh, about this age. And I says, well, what else was happening at that age? What else was going on that was hurting you? Or that was uh, someone who was neglecting you? Um, because this 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 whole situation was about really wanting wanting those things. And they go, well, I was rejected by all my friends. Because... I didn't want to live that way. And all of a sudden, a light goes off. That's what the lie was. That instead of the hurt he got from them, the person got from them, they, were, they started to have a sin that was trying to take away that hurt. Even though you wouldn't think there's anything connected between them. And there's the lies. Many times we don't realize um, how things, we we're hungry, we're hurting. And we want something to take away that hurt. And so it becomes an addiction to take away the pain in our heart because of something we've experienced in our life. And the person was just kind of overwhelmed. They go, Oh my gosh, after the fourth key, I can let go of all that. They were just enlightened. It was just like joy, so light, you know, because all of a sudden now they can let go of all that hurting because they were all connected and they saw for the first time what was happening and that they continue trying to soothe that hurt by going to this addiction. You know, what a beautiful, beautiful way God works to heal and to bring out that, that, that truth that only he can give, enlighten our hearts with his gentleness. Learning humility. You know, Neil talks about in his book a lot of times the mistakes they made in doing healing in doing um, unbound prayer. You know, one was with a with different prayer, a seminarian and a suicidal woman, and a man that just couldn't help, you know. Um, and so uh, it, we all make mistakes in different ways. Um, but there's important lessons always to be learned from our struggles. Um, and one thing he says always is very powerful. He says, no, do not fear the devil. You know, Luke chapter 10, verse 19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. There's the word of God himself. Nothing will hurt you. Okay, I've given you authority over to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. There's the promise of God. Nothing will hurt you. Niels talks about we can give the devil too much, too much, um, too much credit, you know. And he says, really, is fear your pride? Because to be afraid of your pride, be more afraid of our pride than of our than of the devil. So fear then opens the door to the enemy, and faith opens the door to God, and all of His power. It's our choice. You know, fear, the enemy always wants to invoke fear in our hearts, fear of this, fear of that, fear of these things. That's a huge one, you know, and because fear kind of paralyzes us from moving forward and fear can, and I believe me, I speak of this in my own experience, and fear literally can freeze our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and us. And, and yet, um, it, it, faith is one that opens the door to God. And so fear closes the door, faith opens the door. It's our choice. How does pride work? What's it look like? You know, I think one of the, after you get into reading Unbound, I would really encourage this one. Probably one of the best spiritual books I've ever read. Um, you can see guys has got three-fourths of the book is underlined. And so I should just, uh, yeah, take it all out. But uh, um, he, uh, in here, Neil has a, has a great quote. Um, I think he's just uh, so powerful about this whole idea of, of, of why um, we should be more afraid of our pride than anything else. He says, humility is, is simply the truth about who God is and who we are. He says, humility is being secure in God's love and his favor towards you. G.K. Chesterton, the great English author, um, Catholic, said this, quote, it is always the secure who are humble. It is always the the secure who are humble. And as you think about that, you can see that's really true. Neil goes on, humility and security go together just as pride and insecurity, fear, are interwoven. Pride will lead you to believe you need to save yourself, justify yourself. I did it because this, this is why, the excuses we make about things in our life. And that pride will lead you to believe that you need to save yourself, justify yourself, and that life is fullest when you are the center. Humility recognizes you are always safe in the hands of God, and that life is most delightful When you can serve from the heart, trusting Him. The pathway of pride is a pathway to loneliness and isolation. The pathway of humility is a pathway to companionship and honor. Page 29, page 29 of Unbound Ministry Guidebook. just to make it kind of clear, he does a beautiful example. He is, we all battle with pride and insecurity. And that's something we just have to recognize. Yeah, we all do. Any efforts to serve humbly will expose the enemy and reveal the battle within. Let me share some typical symptoms. You decide to serve, to take the last place, but find yourself compulsively wondering whether anyone notices how you are serving. When you are thanked for your service, You feed off the words as if you were starving. You collect a few crumbs but are not satisfied. You compare yourself to others, evaluating your standing before God and others. Insecurity drives you to say, do I deserve God's love? Or I know that I am better than she, or I am not as good as he. Have you ever admired certain parents whose children seem free to be themselves, yet so obedient and respectful at the same time? I know families like this. Getting a glimpse of these blessings can give you a sense of awe. If you were to express to them your admiration, they might say, Thank you, and smile, saying thanks in an expression of humility. Inwardly, they might think, If you only knew what goes on every day at our house. And then whisper thanks to God, for they know he is the one behind every good thing. They know every blessing comes from God. The knowledge of the bigger reality, this acknowledgement of the truth, is true humility. Let's say that again. This knowledge of the bigger reality, this acknowledgement of the truth, everything comes from God, is a true humility. You do not gain humility by denying your, your part or minimizing your abilities. No, you find humility by maximizing your awareness of the grace and action of God, who makes all things possible for those who believe. We have nothing to fear. If we walk in humility, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, Neil Gaines' forgiveness, um, our deeper healing comes many times through deliverance. It kind of breaks things open. Um, we can maybe be held back by something, you know. There's a beautiful story in the Unbound book, Remember, or the uh, the one man sends up, his, sends up his hand and says, Jesus, come and get me, come and get me, you know. Um, and that's that sense of acknowledging that, God, wherever I am, come, I need you. Deliverance unlocks the door, deeper experience of God's love and mercy. You know, um, many times we see that the pains, in our, even physical pains in our body, are connected. You know, an um, uh, early humiliation or fear of rejection enters. You know, um, Neil talked about his first grade time, and he was rejected and how that caused such caused traumas in his own body. You know, how many acts of selfishness to protect from rejection... You know, and I like to share with people sometimes also that I you know our body, God made us as body and soul, which means they're united, perfectly united. OK, so whatever affects our body affects our soul. Whatever affects our soul affects our body. Can't stop it. Can't stop it. We're one. We're one. And so you may not have been aware. Um, But part of the unbound experience is when you get... Neil says, you don't really know what it is until you get set free. Then you go, oh, that's what that was. And you recognize that oppression, that that burden that you're carrying, physically was in your body, was feeling it. Maybe it feels like a pressure in your chest. Maybe it's like something stuck in your stomach. Maybe it's like a weight on your shoulders or a pain in your head or your sciences. You know, um, different things like that can happen. They manifest physically. You know, there's even, I remember reading just this many years ago already, um, a study by, um, um, by in a hospital where they connected um, heart disease with unforgiveness. This is a scientific study. Heart disease with unforgiveness. Back pain with certain things. You know, so different pains actually connected to different things we've been struggling with. You know, what an amazing reality. What is our body? Body and soul. You know, we're one. You know, we can't separate them. And so this idea of being set free can have a physical effect very subtle sometimes great um and, and so it's a beautiful thing that that's jesus coming to bring us healing and bring us profound gifts you know and so it's awesome it's really an awesome thing you know i remember one time um uh, you know you can tell memories that are kind of god wants to do something with when they keep popping up for no reason at different times in your life you know and so that's what you notice here if there's little memories pop up okay that's what the holy Spirit's dealing with that's the kind of stuff you bring to prayer if there's a memory of this, a memory of that, you know. And for a long time, I had a memory of a, a situation. I was in eighth grade and horribly, horribly embarrassing, horribly embarrassing. Actually, caused a rupture in a friendship I'd had that whole time from my best friend, but basically never spoke to me again all through high school. We were in a small high school, I had 30 kids. It's kind of hard not to talk to them, you know, so it's pretty tough. But it was like, wow, what happened, you know? And it was just, a, it was just something that just burdened, burdened me for a long, 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 long time. Until many things like this kind of helped kind of set some of that free to forgive and to renounce that fear of rejection and that rejection that happened. You know, those are heavy burdens that we can all experience in little ways and big ways. One time a spirit, I remember a spirit of fear really kind of probably I had to go back and work with this. And then again, this is like I said, a lot of these things I did when I was going through the DVD series and doing little meditations here in, in the book. Maybe each day there has a little meditation that you do and a little practical kind of application. So they take maybe five minutes, you know, five, ten minutes at the tops, you know, um, to kind of think about it and pray about it. Um, but I remember one time, um, maybe I was, uh, I was the youngest of five kids. And so I remember mom and dad went someplace. And maybe it was the first time I'd been home alone, and I was deathly afraid. All of a sudden, I'm going, oh, I can handle this, no problem, you know. I don't know how old I was, not very old. But it was like I thought, there's oh, this is no problem. But it became just horrifyingly scared, you know. Uh, and so it was something I realized that, you know, there was another place where fear was was harassing me, and I had to renounce the fear that came to me at that time in my life, and that, that situation, you know, and, and to realize there's different places these things can happen, and we can, get, we can kind of start building up a wall, rebuilding the foundation, so to say. Many pieces of life where memories linger, the Holy Spirit's leading you back to find healing and freedom. You know, so those little memories that kind of keep popping up, those are, that's the Holy Spirit, kind of very gently, kind of raising things up to our consciousness. Neil sees the lie and recognizes deception in many ways, you know. Um, we accept the lie that led to sin. You know, it comes time renouncing the lie sets us free to live deeper in Christ. You know, one of the biggest lies that was my experience um, in all this was the first time I really experienced freedom, um, and it was because I told you about the witchcraft stuff, the curse and spells stuff, and, you know, and, and the struggle with that. And I remember coming back from the, the Unbound conference, and I started listening. Had just like just this burning sense. I got to watch this DVD. Got to watch this DVD. It was a training one or something. I don't know what it was. For some reason, it said that. Hey, it said that. On the Neil said it, on the website. We've got all these resources page about all the lies and, and things. And I go, hmm. I Got my phone out and I looked it up. And I started reading through them as they're still going. And I found it. It was like, wow, that's it. That's it. And it was the lie that Satan is more powerful than God. You know when I I stood there and I, I forgave the person, this witch who did all this stuff, and I renounced all the stuff around it and renounced the lie that Satan is more powerful than God. And I had probably euphoric joy, probably for two or three hours, probably for two or three hours. It was so powerful. It was just like I was walking, it was like wow, it went from total despair to absolute euphoric joy, and you can't miss a change like that. You know, and like I said, it's not like that for everybody. Um, but that was for me because that's where I was. And that was God's goodness there to me, um, to set me free. And then I realized this stuff is real. It really works. Because I, I got prayed for five minutes with, with, with Neil. Nothing happened, you know. But it was here afterwards, you know. So, like I said, you may not get the grace here. You may. This may be opening the doors to the grace. You may encounter another way another time. But God is doing something. So don't have any fear about that. God is doing something in your life today and at this retreat. Um, He absolutely is. But it was that great joy that I realized that this is real. This is real. And this is real stuff that's going on. You know, it sets me free to deeper life, having experienced the power of deliverance through renouncing that lie. Janet talked about the history of her migraines. How when her mother, her mother-in-law, had to go to the hospital because of, I think it was migraine or something, that she then recognized that one person praying with her says it's fear. You know, and she realized that that moment she literally broke down and sobbing from, their, from, her, from, her, from her stomach, you know, literally that it was the fear. And God had set her free then from this fear, and she'll know she no longer had migraines. You know, she'd, every time she'd come to a conference, she'd literally have a migraine for two, two three days be taken out. You know, and Neil had something like that also. And so there's these powerful moments that we may not realize physiologically that there may be something back behind that. And so um, that's where we always want to ask the Holy Spirit and in praying with someone is to kind of find out when did that start? You know, that's a question they may ask you. When did that start? What was going on in your life at that time? You know, that's a way to kind of get back to what was going on. Everything goes back. Everything goes back to something, to something earlier usually is when it starts. Um, just like roots, they go down. That's where the plant starts It's down below. Giving testimony is a big way of, big part of healing. It's kind of why I do this, is to remind me of the grace that God has given me. It's good for me to do this because it helps me remember that God has done great things. Because we can oftentimes get caught in the busyness of life and forget about what God has done. Get stuck in another track somewhere, another rut somewhere. And so it's good to come back out where the testimony comes to say that, no, God has done this. This is a great gift. And again, this gives God's glory. And God deserves the glory. He deserves the glory, you know. And that's, I was at a conference not long ago, and that was the point that really stuck with me, is that they said, you know what? God deserves the glory. He deserves to be glorified. And we glorify him by testimony, by telling what he has done in our life. Because he deserves it. He deserves the glory. You know the guidelines for de- seeking, seeking deliverance. You no, know, avoid extremes. The devil does not cause everything. Our response is crucial. It opens the door because we are the ones in control. We take control of how we respond to different traumatic or different temptations and hurts with forgiveness, with forgiveness. That's what cuts the cord. That's what cuts the the legal bond that the enemy has to harass us or to keep punching our wounds, you know, um, maybe as as a, you know... Think about my brothers and sisters, you know, as growing up, and, and you know, there's always a, a, a cruel little way you like to torture your siblings, and when they've got a wound, you keep poking it. <laughs> oh, oh, your shoulders hurt? Smack. You know, Smack, that's kind of how sometimes it happens. Um, but, you know, the enemy's like that too, you know. He sees our wound, he likes to poke it, you know, and stir it up, you know. And so it's just like uh, being at home fighting with your brother's and sisters, you know. They know what hurts you, and so they know where to, to, to hit you, to kind of get to take it to overwhelm you, you know, so yes. Our response is crucial. It opens the door because we are in control. Ask God for revelation about your heart. You know, show me my heart. Um, Maybe that was a meditation lately. You know, Lord, show me my heart. That's one of the ones that comes from here also. Lord, show me my heart. What does it look like? Ask God for this revelation. Show show me, Father, what you are doing in my life. Show me, Father, what you're doing in my life. And then just listen. Let the Lord reveal it to you. I don't know how many of you saw the the movie about... um, uh, about uh, uh, Mister Rogers with, with Tom Hanks. Do you remember in the middle of the movie, the question he asks him, the interviewer, in the middle of the restaurant? A very powerful question. He just says, oh, "I'm going to spoil it for you if you, don't, if you haven't seen the movie." Clear cool, yeah, show cheers. <laughs> but he, but he simply says, you know, that idea of, of 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 what is what is the father doing in your life? And he asks the question that's based so powerful is that you know, take sixty seconds to um, call to mind those who have loved you into existence. That's only 30 seconds, probably. But you see how powerful that is. What a powerful question. Um, Just a sense of recognizing that God has been loving you into existence through grandparents and parents and uncles and aunts and friends and neighbors and people all around, maybe good friends mentors at work and things from places, that God has been loving us into existence. What a powerful, powerful witness that is. You know, it's a great place to remember, then, that God has a plan for your life. Um, but also, as you may have, you've gone through the guidebook here, or this book here, you know, there's a great question here that is so powerful. And it says, you know, God has a plan for your life, but also says that Satan has a plan for your life. And that was the one that really struck me. It's like, whoa, never thought of that before. God has a plan for your life. But so does Satan have a plan for your life? What is it? What is it? How is he trying to destroy your life? How is he trying to destroy you? You know, what is his plan? That's, that's I, again, I say, like I said, many of my healings came from going to the, the DVD and, and just actually doing the reflections. You know, I, re- I received many blessings, you know, um, and, and insights and healings and simply praying through these questions each day after watching videos, uh, Neo's videos at the conference. Every time I listen or watch the videos, I, I, I receive something new, new insights. You know. Um, I think I'll probably share the story of what, what I what mine, what, I, what I learned when I asked that question too a little later, maybe another talk. So what we want to do is to seek Jesus, his truth and his plan. Um, respond honestly, you know. Show me, Father, what are do you doing in my life today? Delivery is a process deliverance is a process. You know, layers are revealed one at a time. You know, that's what Neil Matt said beginning, he says, you know what, you may not get everything, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, you'll get what God wants to deal with today, you know. And if you can get to the root of some things, that'll that'll do a great thing also. Um, it's it's not one done process. So I can't say this enough times. Okay, you're being prayed with with the five keys. Someone helping you through the five keys. The whole purpose of this, okay, the whole purpose of this is to give you these tools. It's a toolbox. You walk out of here with a toolbox, and you've got the five keys as your tools that you can use every single day of your life. Believe me, for the first three or four years, I did it every single day and many times a day. Sometimes the moment of consecration, then enemy would, <laughs> thoughts and temptations and angers and bitterness, and bam. And I'd stop for 10, 15 seconds in the middle of consecration prayer and do the unbound prayers. I mean, it's meant to be yours, not to, not a one and done. So make that your intention right now. I'm walking out of here being able to do this every day of my life with whatever comes up. Because otherwise, you kind of miss the boat. You've gotten a great experience, but you've got to take something home. You know, take the tools with you. He's not just going to walk. He's going to help you wherever you are. He's going to come, and you can live, you can, you can live these. It's just so powerful for it. Thank him not once, and thank him for what he has done, and trust him for what he still wants to do. Okay. Trust God that he still wants to work in your life. Uh, believe me, I'm still struggling, you know, from all the stuff that's happened and all the stuff that I revealed about my, all my brokenness in my whole life. You know, I'm just, it's still working. It's still a work in progress. It's still going, you know, and, and that's part of our lives. You know, that's part of our lives that we don't have perfect lives. You know, we've all had different things can affect different people. Like Neil says, siblings can have two exact different relate, reactions to something one one it affected, one it didn't. You know That's just where we are. Um, and so it's very, very individual. And God is very personally knowing who we are and loving us. Gratefulness for what he has done releases more. Okay, There's a huge, huge secret there. Being grateful for what God is doing opens the door to receiving more. So it's always, thank you, Lord, for giving me this. Thank you, Lord, for this. And opens the door because then we see that God is good. And if God is good, it means that he'll keep helping me. You know, and so recognizing that God is good. St. Saint, um, Saint Faustina, Jesus, in the Divine Mercy Novena, Divine Mercy Diary, you know, uh, I remember reading through it one time and just getting struck by two paragraphs where Jesus says, you know, what hurts me the most is when people refuse to believe in my goodness. St. John Vianney would always say, the good God. When will we help the, or Philip Neary, when will we do something for the good God? You know, that God is good. That was Satan's lie in the garden, that God was not a good father. You know, and so being grateful. Thank Jesus for what he is doing and trust him for what is yet to come. Continue the process. Continue the process. Deliverance moves us from bondage to weakness. Now, this might sound kind of crazy, uh, as you probably read and maybe thought so too. Weakness is good because it's a place of dependence on God and to meet Jesus. So the weakness says that, Lord, I can't do it. I need you. And I'll be honest... That's probably one of the most, one of the, in the last uh, two years, that was probably one of the biggest transformations in my own life was when I came to that point in the middle of the night. You know, God, I can't do this anymore. I need you. Are you real or not? You know, I need you now. You know, weakness. Weakness is where God can finally say, okay, you open the door now. And so there's a powerful moment for us um, is to acknowledge that it's okay to be weak because that means we need Jesus That means we need him to take care of us. Dependence on our Lord is our strength. Deliverance moves from place of bondage to place of weakness and dependence on God. There's two very powerful verses uh, we often need to keep close to us and spend quality time pondering in our Lord's presence. And Paul had some profound, profound spiritual insights. Um, And in 2 Corinthians, Jesus responded to Paul, Paul, And he says, tells Paul, after Paul was complaining about him, about the the struggles that he had, he says, My grace is enough for you, for in weakness, power reaches perfection. That's what Jesus tells Paul. My grace is enough for you, for in weakness, power reaches perfection. In verse 10, Jesus tells him, For when I am powerless, when St. Paul says, For when I am powerless, it is then that I am strong. When I am powerless, it is then that I am strong. As 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. So our view of, 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 of group prayer. Um, you know, you'll be warmly welcomed. Prayer teams know the great things that God wants to, get, to begin and do in your life. You know, they will listen and lead you through the keys, listening to your story. They'll help you commit or recommit your life to the Lord. Um, and be prepared to ask the Lord to reveal unrepented sins, you know. Ask for revelation of areas of deception or where you have swallowed a lie or lies in your everyday life as a child, a young adult, an adult in family life or work life, encounters with others. You know, and, and again, another great way is Appendix 1 at the back of the Unbound books just to kind of cover all the bases, the big stuff that we probably wouldn't even think of sometimes. And sometimes those things are out there, we just kind of ignore them and, and the enemy wants to keep them hidden, but that little list is a really pretty comprehensive list that kind of open the door to stuff that we probably would or wish we wanted to forget, forget anyway. Um, so let's simply close this prayer. Lord, I ask you to send your grace upon, upon me. Send your Holy Spirit to transform my heart and my life. Give me the gift of repentance that leads to life. Amen.